Investors Chronicle. Back to the Companies and Market Show. It is Thursday, the 19th of January, 2023. As we record, uh, delighted to welcome back Michael Fahi. Hi, Mike. Hello, John. How are you? Very well. Good to have you here. Uh, we've got James Norrington on in a little bit as well. He's not quite here yet, but he will be. Uh, he's standing ready. And uh, Dan Jones hosting as normal. Dan, what are we talking about today? Hi, John. We are going to start today with a look at the big builders and why they might be in a little bit of a, a better place than some people think. Then we're going to talk about our cover story this week, which is all about identifying income stocks. James will be here, as mentioned, to talk us through that. And finally, we are looking at Kinetic, one of the many trading updates out in the past few days. We are going to delve into its figures in a bit more detail and discuss defence in general. Flavour of the IC's companies' coverage this week. Oil and gas companies have committed to investing in North Sea oil exploration. The North Sea Transition Authority, which hands out UK offshore oil and gas permits, said its latest funding round matched the previous one from 2019. It comes despite fears the energy windfall tax might dampen investment enthusiasm. Alex Hamer has the full write-up online. Payments company Wise has increased its full-year guidance, now forecasting total income growth to be around the 70% mark. It comes after rising interest rates boosted the company. Arthur Sants with the write-up of that one. Ocado's sales have fallen for the very first time. The online grocery retailer, now with ties to M&S, saw revenue drop 4% for the 2022 financial year. Despite a forewarning to investors, shares fell 6% on the news. Publisher Pearson, on the other hand, said it traded ahead of expectations in 2022. The company achieved the best total returns of all the FTSE 100 companies last year and brought in an 11% increase in adjusted operating profits for the year. Couple of food delivery company updates. Firstly, Just Eat Takeaway shares rose 15% after a fourth quarter update outlining a, quote, material improvement in profits. Annual order numbers were, however, down 9% for 2022 as consumers cut back on spending to end the year. Meanwhile, Deliveroo also said it's expect it also said it expected to be more profitable than previously forecast, citing profit margin expansion and cost control as the reasons. And finally, bootmaker Dr. Martens fell 22% this Thursday morning after revealing a £30 million decrease to its full-year profits. The group said it was experiencing operational issues at its new distribution centre in Los Angeles. And Gemma Slingo has a longer write-up of that one too on the IC website and in the magazine. Uh, let's get on with the show. We start building contractors. Do you think that this is not the year for them? The housing market is going to struggle. General building is surely going to suffer if and when a recession emerges. But there are, in fact, some reasons to be cheerful as we interrogate a bit more this week. Uh, Mike, you wrote the piece looking at companies like Kia, Costain, Balfour BT, Morgan Sindel. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I started the piece... Um, with some data from Gwenigan, which is uh, a, data, a construction data company that tracks projects uh, generally at the smaller end of the market, so 100 million plus or 100 million or less. Um, and I did that for a reason. And 
that was because in many cases that's where these uh, a lot of the housing work a lot of the smaller scale infrastructure work around new housing estates etc that's where a lot of that will lie and when you look at that part of the market it does look quite grim there are i think the workloads are due to fall uh, there were fewer projects in the pipeline. Uh, the house builders themselves seem to have slowed down new starts at the end of last year uh, because of fears about the the overall level of demand and the amount of people um, looking at new sales. Um, but that so that is for the market overall. That is going to definitely have a dampening effect. And when you look at things like the Construction Products Association's forecast, it's downgraded its uh, its output forecast for 2023 a few times. And the last one was suggesting that uh, I think a negative 3.1% growth this year. Um, and that's partly, again, the lack of new housing starts, but also uh, fewer people... Um, doing conversions at home and DIY because of the cost of living squeeze. But when you look at the the listed contractors, and for investors that's where the interest lies, um, they are not as reliant on that side of things as they once were, and certainly the likes of Balfour's kind of actively disengaged from um, the uh, the house building or the, the market for big towers in London. Um, partly because it's so cyclical really and construction has always been considered a massively cyclical sector but the piece looked at um, the fact that for many of these larger contractors the um, infrastructure is going to underpin so much of what they do uh, for the next couple of years it almost provides a, a nice floor it provides them with a steady flow of work which then allows them to invest in kit to, in training and in uh, and in lots of other things you know modern methods of construction if you know you have a project that's going to run for several years where an investment where you know you're going to get a return on an investment if you invest in a massive piece of machinery then you're more likely to do it infrastructure of course uh, many of our listeners may uh, have access to this theme via Infrastructure Investment Trust, which if they do, they'll know they've done very well over mm. a number of years now. I mean, is infrastructure, you know, itself as, a, as an asset class, as, a, as an opportunity recession resistant? You know, it, it, does it have the ability to to hold up in, in difficult times like this, you know, which we might be going through? Yeah, I think hold up is, is quite difficult, isn't it? Because um, infrastructure is often seen as somewhere where people might take shelter in a recession but then there's uh when you look at the higher borrowing rates and higher rates of returns then the returns that infrastructure investments offer don't look quite as good um mm. i suppose it's a it's it's safety isn't it um there are going to be re-ratings on some of the projects that those trusts ultimately hold uh and maybe downwards but over a 30-year lifespan, it shouldn't make a huge difference. Yeah, and, and some of the things you touched on in the piece, some, some if not bull points, then certainly reasons to be relatively cheerful. For example, in the um, 
autumn statement, you know, there wasn't a sort of mass cancellation of projects, projects no. that some had feared. Obviously, these are the very, very big ticket uh, projects like HS2, things like that. But that's a promising sign, nonetheless. Yeah, and when we were talking about infrastructure trust, generally we're talking about things that hold assets that are already built, whereas the with the contractors, they're looking at active workloads, they're looking at... Mm. Um, and also, they're looking at quite a lot of... Uh, projects where the government is ultimately footing a bill, and it will there will still be state assets at the end of the day. Whether that's the the rail lines, the you know the great core northern powerhouse rail project, and HS two, um, and it's schemes like that that are really keeping um, some of the contractors, the likes of Balfour Beatty and Keir, really busy. And even uh, you know the office market, which is going through some obvious difficulties, not least as the continued shift towards hybrid working continues to play out. Even there, there are some positives in terms of refits, refurbs, which is a subject our property correspondent Mitchell has written about a few times, but yeah. but that could be a bit of a boon as well. Yeah, um, so th- I think the problem with new build working offices at the moment is that generally if you are going to develop a massive new office block speculatively, and there aren't many doing that. There are some, but there aren't many. You need um, you need a prelet. You need an anchor tenant who's going to take maybe twenty percent of the space. And at the minute, where, while companies are still working out what they want to do with their office space and how much they need and whether they are going to shift from one to you know from two buildings to one or five to two, there's probably not that many or not as many active commitments as there were. But there are opportunities with refurbs, especially hybrid working. And when I last spoke to Morgan Sindel, which admittedly was early last year, uh, John Morgan was kind of very bullish on this area, um, on the fact that they were really busy with office fit-outs as people were repurposing space, putting in more auditorium space and like groups, working spaces where people can come together when they come into the office. And there's also an ESG impulse in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Um, you know, the the kind of one of the biggest problems with construction and construction of new buildings is the is the kind of carbon footprint. And if you by refurbishing, then clearly you're not pumping lots of um, concrete, which is uses so much energy really to generate. Let's finish by talking a little bit about valuation. Uh, one thing, well, for one thing, some of these companies look relatively cheap, but that's probably a reflection of the, yeah. the economic uh, outlook. You know, you've got to take these things in context. In context, Another aspect of it is that maybe the mid-tier operators look a bit more vulnerable than the bigger players, which is often the case, again, in times of stress. So in terms of the of the big contracting groups that that we focused on in this article, they are they do look cheap over than well, Balfour BT is the one that's maybe priced slightly more on a slightly higher multiple and even that's only like eleven times earnings. Um there are reasons for that. I think one is that um Balfour has some other strings to its bow, its support services arm which does a lot of power and rail maintenance, has much higher margins. I think it generated something like 50% of last year's profit, even though it was only between 10 and 15% of the total turnover. Um, so it has that. The, the contractors are have generally pretty lowly rated because the margins are so low. You know, they're working off 1% and 2% off some of these big 
projects. And the reason why, another reason why they're so lowly rated is because when you're working on margins that are that fine, it doesn't take a lot to go wrong before you have complete wipeouts. And most of them, so especially in the wake of the, it, a couple of years ago when Carillion was going bust and Interserve was going through its own restructuring, um, there were a lot that then found problem contracts. And I think, again, one of the reasons why Balf is maybe slightly higher rated is it's had those wipeouts as well where it's had a couple of years of losses, but it's not had them for a long time. I know Julian talked about um, Leo Quinn and the CEO and his role as a turnaround expert. And I think Leo came in in 2015 and it's not had a, an unprofitable year since 2015, although its margins are still pretty fairly weak. I think last year was 1.2%. Yeah, and the other thing we should say on that front, I suppose, is, is other than uh, Morgan Sindor, you know, share price performance has been a little bit underwhelming, even for the bigger players. In yeah, Kier and Costain have been awful, really, if you've yeah. invested in those. I think both have lost about 80% or more. Costain is something that I wrote about in the idea section um, because I think there's a, definitely a potential for a re-rating there. Uh, we point out in the piece again that uh, its cash, its last cash balance was around 96 million, and it's valued at just over 100 million. So if you're just taking the cash on its balance sheet and subtract that, the business has got to be worth more than 10 million. You'd think for something with its expertise. The problem again is that it's had those profit wipeouts in past years, and it just needs to develop a track record of. Not spectacular profits, but steady, profitable growth. Just showing it can yeah do what it's supposed to yeah. do. Yeah, well, that piece, uh, as we say, is in the print issue this week, and it is online, so do take a look at that. Thanks, Mike. We'll come back to you uh, in a bit, but for now we're going to refer to our cover story this week, which, as discussed, is on dividends, income-paying stocks. Again, might be a place to hide in difficult times, Certainly something that a large section of the population relies on in the in the latter years for income streams nowadays. Uh, James, you wrote the piece, though, very much looking at how you can identify a good, a reliable dividend payer, if possible, particularly at a time where, you know, again, the backdrop has changed, interest rates are higher than they were. Uh, why don't you sort of talk us through your initial thinking? Hi, hi, Dan. Um, hi, Mike. Um, I was the, the thinking behind the piece really was um, you know the, the dividend cover um, for FTSE hundred. Um, it's a bit of research out before Christmas um, by AJ Bell suggested that that was that was pretty good. Uh, you know, expecting it to sort of to be a, a healthy two times for the FTSE hundred anyway um, next year. Uh, but that sort of belies a few other factors. Um, there's one. Um, Obviously, the FTSE 100 is quite a con- concentrated index, first of all. So um, if, if you get sort of the energy majors have a, a bumper year, some of the banks doing a bit better with income, net, net interest, interest income with rising rates, then, then that sort of distorts matters a bit. But also, um, you know, we're at sort of a bit of an inflection point with, um, uh, with, with company earnings and, and what you can expect with company earnings. There's, there's probably a lot of potential to disappoint next year, which means that um, that cover in 12 months time may not have, have been as, as rosy as, as, as that picture with um, there could be a lot of re-ratings in the market. So really it was it was looking at some of the factors you should look at with a, a long-term dependable dividend stock. It's pretty um, consistent what, what you'd always look for from a, from a, a dividend stock. You, you, you want a company with reliable cash flows, a good rate of growth. Um, you kind of 
tend to want to avoid the companies with very high dividend yield. I mean, that's, that's the obvious thing, because that's normally a sign of something something wrong. The sense checks you'd look at, obviously, dividend cover, but it's not just, a, as we mentioned, dividend cover by earnings. You also want to look at the quality of those earnings and the sustainability of those earnings now a bit more. You're also looking at what, what are the competing calls on cash that a company has as well. So um, debt repayments, um, so you want to look at the interest cover how much um, operating profits uh, can can cover can cover that that interest obligation? What you also want to look at is is um, capital expenditure. Um, that's obviously going to be a, a, a competitor for, for cash in a business. But, but um, you need to look at things in terms of trend, because uh, a company finding something good to invest in that's going to generate you more profits over the long term that's not a bad thing, and that isn't necessarily. Um, running against the interests of people who want investment for income. If, if the company remains liquid and solvent, then that's probably a good thing for the long run. Where you want to be a bit more vigilant is in terms of the replacement capex cycle. You could expect to see a dip if companies have a regular need to replace in, um, in terms of their free cash flow. But you would be a little bit more concerned if they, if they went negative. On, on replacement capex, but a, but a dip would be something that, that you'd probably expect to see. And then and you, you're going into looking at sort of some of the idiosyncrasies of, of how companies um, manage their inventory, how they account for, for things like sort of creative things they're doing on their tax statement versus um, their, their tax expense, because, because all these things have a, they feed through to what earnings are being reported and you want to compare that to that earnings per share to to your dividend per share when you're looking at your cover um, and then obviously always in the background you're, you're looking at um, you're looking at the, the cash situation the cash flows the conversion of, of operating um, income into operating cash flows as well. well one thing you look at is uh, as you expect you know the question of what to pay for income versus what you get I mean the dividend yield is a perhaps an interesting uh, point to pick up on just because with a higher risk-free rate, you do, you know, require potentially a higher dividend yield, but equally you go too high and there are red flags there. So one thing you do look at in the piece, as I say, is how to how to structure the question of what you want to pay for a good income stock. And you do that by looking at the, the Gordon growth model. I, I bring in the Gordon growth model. I mean, it's which is, is basically sort of a, a perpetual way of valuing a dividend paying stock. So it's, it's quite a useful way of looking at sort of say utilities that, that have grown i use the example of uh, i use national grid i think in my in my piece and it's sort of it's a way of looking at the the, the constant growth of a stock a, a constant growth rate which which you could look at historical dividend growth rate but the way i've done it is look at return on equity um and uh, uh and, and the, the retention rate of earnings to look at long-term growth and and use that to value a perpetual rate subtracting a, a risk-free rate I've used the 10-year UK gilt yield for at the moment, or gross redemption yield is about three and a half percent. That would suggest, looking at that now, and this sort of speaks um, to to some of the interest that, that that actually National Grid, for example, was a bit undervalued. But that's not really the case. I think it's uh, you know, the, the investors in shares are, are adding in another premium. Possibly they're a bit more sceptical about um, inflation. I mean, I think the required rate of return. Looking at my Gordon model, would be about five percent, but um, but according to the share price, it's about seven percent. So I mean, I don't think the market's necessarily wrong. But the interesting thing is, is is the timing of when you're an income investor, of, of you know when when you're expecting stocks to do the heavy lifting. I mean, if inflation prints come in a bit better than expected over the next year or so, then actually you could say a stock like that is probably undervalued 
now and it will go up and it, it definitely will because people's discount rates will change mm. but but in in sort of the the, the shorter term uh, even you know even though guilt long-term guilt yields you know they do factor in inflation but they're also sort of factoring in second guessing what central banks are going to do with rates so that they're, they're not, not necessarily the the actual premium that people require for in, in, inflation of, a, of an equity investor they add that in themselves um so that they say so that it's um we have a sort of a, a pretty informationally efficient market at the large cap level so but it is still interesting to look at the um the discrepancies between um you know a model a theoretical model like like the gordon model and and how the market is currently valuing stocks yeah, there are obviously always external factors to take into account and be be aware of. Uh, let's finish on, you know, very, no doubt, very simplistic question or, or point. But, uh, you know, one of the things the piece also does is it, it looks at uh, one of the Investors Chronicle Alpha screens, the dividend compounder screen. And it just gives some example of the kind of stocks that, uh, you know, do relatively well on that basis. And they are, you know, in the main, you know, the mega cap kind of companies, you know, is is bigger, better right now? For a variety of reasons, not automatically, of course, or, or is it? You know, is that just a function of the screen in this case? It's it's easier um, to look at and illustrate the flags with the. the I mean, the, the alpha mm. screens we look at mid cap um, and, and small cap and aim as well. I mean, a small cap screens, you know, dividends more of a value indicator at that level. You yeah. Know. Um, mid cap, um, I think you could probably find some good dividend paying stocks um further down the cap scale if you you looked at some of the the measures we looked in in the feature but the large cap really because you can see where the because we had to relax the screen because of the the covid um so there's there's a few stocks in there that 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 probably um you know you wouldn't get in um you know in if we'd had a normal past five years whatever a normal past five years is so so it's, it's easier to, to really to illustrate the flag so a screen like that's most useful to actually to look in the column on the right if you pick up the magazine and and, and look at the flags of what's been failed and and then actually almost read it backwards and look at those to see whether they yeah. these companies should be in your income portfolio start from yeah the point of view of what they're doing worst and then yeah work your way up yeah, as you say, James, all that information is in the magazine this week and online. Uh, there's a lot of data in there, uh, a lot of food for thought. So do pick that up if you get the chance. But we're going to conclude today with a company, specific company trading update. Defense has clearly been of greater interest to investors over the past year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It hasn't always panned out perfectly in terms of share price gains, but Kinetic has been one of the good performers. That said, there were signs of slowing momentum in the order book in this Q3 update. Is that just a blip? Yeah, so just to take a step back for anyone who's not familiar with the company, it's um, it's very much at the cutting-edge science and technology end of defence. It was a spin-out from uh, a research arm of the Ministry of Defence way back when, before it was floated on the stock exchange. Um, so... A lot of the things that it does are um, things like autonomous vehicles, um, some of the drone technologies, a lot of work in cyber. Um, and that has, I think, a bit of an impact on the way in which uh, its valuation is being reflected. We'll, we'll come to that later. Um, but in terms of the trading update itself, this time around, you're right, there was... Um, there's evidence of a slowdown in terms of order intake. They were uh, they flagged order intake of a billion, which a billion pounds, which is 
decent, but uh, 800 million of that was in the first half. So over the last quarter, they've taken in 200 million, which is a bit of a slowdown. And um, I think that is maybe the reason why there was probably quite a muted reaction on the markets to uh, to the trading up statement because in general it's still fairly positive. It's going in the right direction. The the billion order intake is ten percent up on last year. Revenue seems to be running around the same level as last year, but they're still guiding for uh, a decent level of underlying profits of about eleven to twelve percent margin. As we say, you know, uh, defence stocks haven't always panned out amazingly for investors over the past year, despite what you may have expected yeah. with the outbreak of the war. Um, What's the reasons for that? And can we talk through a bit of the, the differences between some... some yeah, sure, of course. Um, so I, we included a chart which um, had six of the UK listed defence companies and two were big outperformers and Kinetic was one of those two. Uh, two were fairly flat and two um, actually had a negative return, which you really wouldn't expect in a year where... European governments are massively increasing their um, commitment to defence spending. And there is, there is stock-specific reasons for the two which were underperformers. One is Avon, which is going through all kinds of issues with its body armour unit, which is winding down. The other is Babcock, um, which is a big, sizable company in this market, but it's had a couple of years of terrible results and has quite a, a heavily indebted balance sheet, which is trying to... Solve it's sold off a lot of businesses over the past year, which improves the balance sheet, but does doesn't do any much for your revenue or your growth. Um, of the two that have massively outperformed, one uh, is BAE Systems, um, which and Kinetic is the other, and the two of those have outperformed because um, I think there's more immediate evidence of the of the benefits of this increased spending generally. Government spending on defence contracts, it could take years from a government increasing its budget until that then feeds through in terms of new tank programmes or new destroyers or whatever it is. It it takes an awfully long time for these things to go through procurement. But with BAE Systems, it has provided quite a lot of the ammunition to the MOD, which has then provided it to the Ukrainians. And now the UK has agreed to provide Challenger 2 tanks, their BAE systems made. So it has had quite an immediate benefit from from the war in Ukraine. And similarly, Kinetic has much more um, things that you can turn around in the short term. So one of the things it highlighted this week was uh, an 80 million contract win from the MOD for mission data, a mission data program where it's looked to kind of accelerate the way in which um, mission data or more mission data can be used more quickly and more thoroughly and the way in which it's shared and to ensure there's no big cyber threat around that. Uh, the, the interesting thing, another interesting thing was on when you look Europe-wide, the biggest gains just in terms of share price, share prices over the past year have been a couple of German companies, which also perhaps reflects the fact that while defence is, you know, perennial big business in the UK and the US, it's Germany that's really sort of rethought yeah. what's going on. Now, Kinetic doesn't really have much uh, uh, exposure there, but but that's perhaps something to keep in mind as well when 
when people are looking at this sector if they're interested in it. So it has taken this decision to move to gear more towards the UK, US and Australia, which makes sense in strategic terms, but maybe um, the way in which the war in the Ukraine has, has changed the commitments means it could potentially miss out. I mean, Germany was possibly a laggard, or was definitely a laggard, in terms of its commitment to spending 2% of GDP on defence budgets, but it was, as soon as um, the invasion happened, it made it very clear that it would be doing so from now on. So that's where probably the biggest uplift in European defence spending is going to come in the German market, and hence why two of the major outperformers have been uh, Rheinmetall, a German company that makes tanks, and Hensoltz, which makes the detection, threat detection equipment. And just to return to the UK peer group to conclude, you know, relative valuations there, as we said, there has been that discrepancy over the past year. Does that change the equation looking further ahead as well? Well, one of the... I think one of the strange things, really, is that um, you would think with Kinetic, with its technology background, with the fact that it's doing quite a lot of advanced stuff, um, it would also want a contract for this directional laser weapon. Um, it's kind of very early stage stuff with Australia, a directed energy weapon development contract it was. Um Say no so, more. We all know. Yeah, we indeed. all know what that means. We've all seen the James Bond film, Die Another Day. But it's actually has a slightly lower rating. It's trading on about um what less than thirteen times earnings. And when you look at its peer group, likes of BAE, Kenwing and Cohal are all on fourteen times. Avon's on twenty nine times, which is probably a reflection of its earnings weakness rather than mm. any kind of great bullish investor case there. So Perhaps an opportunity, really. Uh, it's you know it's below its own uh, five-year average, and it's below a lot of its peer group. And given the the market for defence spending, certainly seems shows no sign of weakness. It, it certainly seems to be going on like one way at the minute. Then the long-term prospects look for it look pretty good. Mike, thank you. That does bring us to the end of the show this week. So thanks to James and to Mike and to John. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Markets show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.